Uh, my assignment this morning, transitioning to the sermon, is a very weighty passage. And in this passage, I'm going to present uh, a, a very grave message that's more powerful than life or death. What you do with this morning's passage will literally decide your eternal future. Whether you go to heaven or hell. Whether you'll be raised from the dead for eternal life or eternal death. It's not an exaggeration to say that the stakes could not be higher. And so for many of us, we're Christians. And so, so my hope and my expectation is you'll be able to affirm this. But to be reminded of just the weightiness of the gospel and the beginning of the gospel, we see it in John's ministry. Because today we are going to be introduced to John the baptizer. He was the last of the Old Covenant prophets, and his ministry really summarizes the Old Testament, that that God was making a point in the Old Testament. And, And the point was, we cannot earn our righteousness, that we will fall short of the glory of God, that we will break covenant, we will sin, we will fail to be righteous in and of ourselves. And John embodies that message that every prophet of the Old Covenant came to deliver to the people. And then he says, in light of that reality, repent. John's ministry was ordained by God to prepare people to come to Jesus on God's terms. I think that's really important to understand that, that John was preparing a people to understand and to come to Jesus on God's terms. And that is, we cannot come to Christ in any kind of saving way until we recognize our need. Uh, Nobody will come to Jesus in a saving way if they think that they are righteous in and of themselves. In fact, the only way to come to Jesus on God's terms, to, to receive the gift of grace that leads to salvation and eternal life, is to first come to terms with the bad news of the gospel, which is, we are sinners. And that's what John is doing. John is preparing Israel to to receive Jesus on God's terms. What the men, women, and children did in John's day with his message, and what we do with John's message today, is the peg on which our eternal future hangs. With that in mind, let's read the text together. Uh, Would you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3? And as I read this, would you please stand? This is the Word of God from Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days... John the baptizer came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But 
When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The word of God. Let's pray. Oh God, this is a weighty passage, and our eternal futures hang on our response to it. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit and help me to proclaim your gospel from this text. I pray that you would speak through me. I pray for anyone here who's not saved, that they would heed these words and repent and come into your kingdom. Lord, for those of us who are saved, I pray that you would refresh us in a knowledge of your grace and our need for it. I pray that you would ready us to go out with the full gospel, to help people to see their need for Christ, uh, that they might come to him on your terms as we have. God, please help me to preach. And help us to receive your preaching. And ultimately, Lord, speak to us by your spirit through your word. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. To begin with, I want to talk about both the essence of John's preaching and the symbolism of John's preaching. Uh, We don't have much about John the Baptist in Matthew's gospel. I mean, he preached for, for a long time relatively. Uh, And so we have just a snapshot. What Matthew has done is he's summarized for us the essence of what John's message was. And what was that essence? Well, we see it in verse 2. Just take a look at verse 2. If you had to summarize John's life, if you had to summarize John's message and his ministry, you could summarize it with Matthew 3 verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You'll notice that there's two parts to this. Uh, John's ministry was a ministry of, of inviting people to repentance, uh, to, to go out and say, you need to repent, understand your situation, and come to God by repentance. And the second part of John's message and his ministry was to proclaim the coming of the kingdom. He says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what does it mean to repent, and what does it mean that the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Well, let's start with repent. And again, uh, it really helps if you have knowledge of the Old Testament, uh, because John is an Old Testament, an Old Covenant prophet. And so when he says repent, what he's saying is, I want you, and to the people he's talking to, I want you to compare your life to the covenant. I want you to measure yourself against the perfect standard of God's law. 
And what will you discover? You'll find that you have broken covenant. If you're honest, if, if God has given you eyes to see. Uh, so after you compare yourself to the perfect law of God, uh, the hope is when you're inviting people to repent, that they will see that they have broken it, that they have sinned, they have transgressed God's law, God's covenant, that, that they are sinners. And then before you can repent, you must confess your sin. But confession and repentance is not exactly the same thing. To confess is to acknowledge, yes, I'm a sinner. To repent is to say, God, I'm sorry. Uh, Please have mercy on me and help me to change the direction of my life. Uh, To repent is to turn around. Uh, I am walking in this direction. If I repent, I turn around and I walk in the other direction. And so this call to repentance is uh, to be self-aware. We cannot come to Jesus on God's term if we uh, are not self-aware, if we do not see ourselves the way God sees us, that we're sinners. So that's what it means to repent. Repent. That's the message of John. He was trying to help Israel to see that they were not righteous. See, the Pharisees had a totally different agenda. They wanted to make people righteous through good works. And John comes with a very different message saying, you can't do that. You need to compare yourself to the law of God, recognize that you fall short, and repent. So what does it mean that the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Well, this is loaded with Old Testament imagery and expectation. Before the exile in 586 B.C. to Babylon, uh, there were prophets that talked about the coming judgment, that, that Israel had broken covenant, therefore they were going to go into exile. But after exile, the prophets promised that God would bring them back to Jerusalem and restore them, and the Davidic king would reign over Israel, and not just Israel, but over all of the nations. And so this was an expectation. Seventy years after they were in Babylon, they came back to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt their houses, but the temple was never filled with the glory of God, and the Davidic king never came back. And so at the time of John... There was this hope, there was this expectation that one day the king would come. And when the king came, he would bring all of the prophetic hope, all of the prophetic promise for restoration with him. And John is saying that day has come. The Davidic king is coming and his kingdom is coming with him. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that God promised through the the pre-exilic prophets is at hand. It's coming Now included in this is the day of the Lord, that before we can enter into the kingdom of heaven, there's a day of judgment. And so repent, the kingdom of heaven is coming, the Davidic king is coming, the promises of restoration are coming, the king will reign over us and the nations, but before that kingdom is established, God is going to judge Israel and the nations. The judgment begins with the household of God. Therefore, be ready for the judgment so you'll come through the judgment and populate the kingdom. That's his message. Repent because the kingdom's coming, which means judgment day is coming. Make yourself right with God so that you come through judgment so that you can be in the kingdom. That's John's message. And we see that here in verse 2. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the essence of John's ministry. So what about the symbolism? Uh, uh, John was a very colorful character. Uh, He was not vanilla. 
You went out into the Jordan to see John, you got your money's worth. Uh, He was loud and he was brash and he was full of symbolic uh, gestures. And so I want to talk about the symbolism of John's prophetic ministry in two parts. The first part was that what was John doing at the Jordan? He was calling Israel to the Jordan to re-enter the promised land. And secondly, we're going to notice the way he was dressed. John was intentionally fulfilling the ministry of Elijah. So let's look at these two things in order now. So first of all, John was calling the Jews to re-enter the promised land. Uh, We see this in verse 1 and 5 and 6. So let's look at verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching, where? In the wilderness of Judea. Now go down to verse 5 and 6. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. We get two uh, geographical markers here. He's in the wilderness of Judea at the Jordan River. And unlike New Jersey, uh, the, the wilderness is very specific. If you said, you know, John was in the wilderness of Jersey, you'd say, well, I have no idea where he is, because the whole thing is wilderness. You're the Garden State. Um, <laughs> So you couldn't find him. It's like finding a needle in a haystack. If you went to find somebody in the wilderness of Judea, though, it's not very big. I don't know how many of you have been to Israel. A few of you. Uh, At a certain point, if you go to Herodium, you can see all of the wilderness of Judea. It's a very contained place. It's between uh, Mount Nebo and Jericho, basically, and then up the mountain toward Jerusalem. So... He's at the Jordan River, not anywhere. It's a long river. He's at the Jordan River in the wilderness of Judea, which is just north of the Dead Sea. In fact, if you drew a straight line from Mount Nebo in Moab and you went straight to the west to Jericho, you would go through the plains of Moab into the Jordan River across the wilderness of Judea. That's where John is. And what's interesting about this, do you know, do you, is the word Nebo familiar to anyone? Mount Nebo? Who died at Mount Nebo? Moses did. Moses died at Mount Nebo, and then Joshua brought the people through the plains of Moab across the Jordan River into the wilderness of Judea to Jericho. Which means John is very intentionally ministering where Joshua led the people into the promised land. And so when he calls people to the Jordan River, we have, we have a lot of extra theology that we add to our knowledge of baptism. But in John's day, what was this baptism? It was, let's recross the Jordan. That when you go under the water and come out of the water, you remember the Red Sea and the Jordan River passings. You're saying, well, we've been sinning ever since we came into the land. So John says, well, let's start over. Let's go back to our point of entry and let's go through the water again. Let, let's come out and, and we will now go back. When you go under the water, remember you were slaves in Egypt And when you come out of the water, remember that you were delivered from your slavery. You crossed through the Red Sea. You crossed through the Jordan River. You entered into the promised land. And this time, says John, let's not sin. Let's keep 
covenant. So that's, that's really the symbolism of the Jordan River at this particular location. He's exactly where Joshua brought the people into the promised land. And it's in this context that Matthew quotes from Isaiah 40 and verse 3. Just take a look at verse 3. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This is really challenging as a preacher to explain this because this really deserves its own sermon. There's so much in Isaiah that, that Matthew is alluding to, but let me try to give you the big picture for our purposes this morning. In the book of Isaiah, you have 39 chapters of judgment. First 39 chapters are basically saying you're breaking covenant, therefore God's judgment is coming and you will go into exile. After chapter 39, you have the exile. And then for chapters 40 through 55, you have the promise of deliverance. And the imagery that Isaiah uses is the imagery of Exodus. And so this passage, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, comes to us from Isaiah 40. It's the beginning of the redemptive section of the book of Isaiah. And this section is filled with Exodus imagery, which is exactly what we were talking about before with with Joshua, bringing the people out out of the wilderness into the promised land. Now in Isaiah chapters 40 through 48, God promises to deliver the people from Babylon just as he delivered them from Egypt. And then in chapter 49 through 55, God says, but if I bring you out of Babylon, you're just going to break covenant again, and we're going to be back in the same place. Now, that's where John is preaching from. We've come out of Babylon, and we're no further ahead than we were before. We've been sinning ever since we came back to the promised land. So we've entered the promised land once with Joshua, a second time with Zerubbabel after the Babylonian captivity, and we're still breaking covenant. But this is where Isaiah 49 through 55 comes in. That's where you have the suffering servant songs. You know, Isaiah 53, where, you know, on him all our iniquity was laid, and he has borne our our sins, and he was uh, killed in our place, the suffering servant. And what, what we have there is imagery that, The king will come to deliver us through an exodus from sin. And so John is proclaiming the Babylonian exodus has happened. Now it's time for the ultimate exodus, the exodus from sin. So come to the Jordan. Let's prepare ourselves for that exodus. So much more could be said about that. Uh, But all you need to know is exodus imagery is all over John's ministry. This deliverance from from slavery in Egypt. This deliverance from captivity in Babylon. This deliverance ultimately from our slavery to sin by the king himself. And so, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. John is saying, I am the voice in the wilderness declaring that the time has come for the ultimate exodus from sin to happen. Be ready for it. Repent. It's coming. That's the first aspect of the symbolism of John's ministry, uh, asking people to repent, to re-enter the promised land. Secondly, John was fulfilling the ministry of Elijah. 
John was intentionally dressing himself up like Elijah. Uh, And so take a look at verse 4. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, what are these details given to us for? Well, if you were a first century Jew, you would have totally understood what John was doing. Uh, It's as if he went into his costume uh, hutch and he pulled out uh, a costume that says Elijah. And he put on Elijah's clothes so that when people came to see him, they say, hey, he looks a lot like Elijah. And that's exactly the point. Uh, John wanted people to think of him as another Elijah. Now, how do we know that this is what Elijah looked like? Well, if you go back, just listen to this. 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, we get a description of John. He said, what kind of man was this who came to meet you and told you these things? They said, well, we're not sure, but he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said to him, oh, that must be Elijah the Tishbite. So Elijah was known for his dress code uh, back in Elijah's day. John is taking Elijah's costume and putting it on himself. Why would he do that? Prophetic symbolism. What's he trying to communicate? Well, the first reason is... If you want to understand John, go back and read about Elijah. You can read about Elijah from 1 Kings 17 to 2 Kings chapter 2. And Elijah's ministry could be summarized very much the same way that John's ministry was summarized, with the exception that John was prophesying that the kingdom was at hand. But they were both focused on a repentance ministry. Uh, Elijah went around in, in the northern kingdom. He said, repent and keep covenant. Otherwise, you will be judged. Ultimately, he failed. And in 722 BC, the Assyrians came in and destroyed the northern kingdom. Now, Elijah didn't fail. Elijah did what God asked him to do, and he was faithful. So it wasn't a failure in that sense. The people failed to heed Elijah's call for repentance. Now, if John is dressing up like Elijah and he says, repent, there's a subtext to this. If you don't, what happened to the northern kingdom? They're destroyed. We can expect likewise that if we do not prepare ourselves, when the king comes, we will not be ready for the kingdom and all we will receive is judgment. It's a powerful point to be made just by wearing a hairy coat and a leather belt. But John's ministry was intentionally self-patterned after Elijah's ministry. Now, there's a second aspect to why John was doing this, and we find that actually at the end of the Old Testament. If you just flip backward a couple of pages to Malachi chapter 4, the way in which the Old Testament ends in our Protestant Bibles is the book of Malachi, I'm going to read all of chapter 4. It's only six verses. And this is very much the subtext for John's ministry, that, that finally the 400 years of God's silence are broken. We have a prophet again picking up where Malachi left off. So this is where God's word had ceased 400 years earlier. Now John is here saying, let's pick it up right there. So Malachi chapter 4. Behold, the day is coming... Burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The days that is coming shall set them ablaze, 
says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So you see here, there's two alternatives here. The day will come, judgment day, when the wicked will be judged and burned like stubble in a fire, but those who repent will leap like deers and rise with the son of righteousness. So you have an option, repent and be saved, or be wicked and be burned in judgment. Therefore, verse 4, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, verse 5, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. What is the great and awesome day of the Lord? This day of judgment. I will send you Elijah so that you have an opportunity to repent before judgment comes. Judgment's not going to fall on you unexpectedly. I'm going to warn you. I'm going to give you time to prepare yourselves for the day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So ends the Old Testament. And now we're at the very beginning of the New Testament, and we have that Elijah. That Elijah is now at the Jordan River in the wilderness of Judea, calling on people to repent, dressed up like Elijah, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the great and awesome day of the Lord is coming, let's be ready. So John's ministry was intentionally self-patterned after Malachi's prophecy. He saw himself as God's gracious messenger to give people time to repent before judgment. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John was saying, I am the promised Elijah, warning you to repent before judgment day comes to inaugurate the kingdom of heaven. Now, John's ministry was wildly successful. Uh, God's grace was pouring out on his people at the Jordan River, and a great mass of people understood and responded appropriately to both the essence and the symbolism of John's ministry. They, they heard, they understood what he was saying, they understood the, the context of, of the Old Testament, and they readied themselves for the kingdom of heaven. And we see that response in verses 5 and 6. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. They are doing this precisely in the context that I've painted for you today. What we've talked about this morning, that's what they understood themselves to be doing. They were, they were preparing themselves for judgment. They were readying themselves to come through judgment and enter into the kingdom of heaven. They were ready for the Davidic king to come and to both judge and to reign in justice and in righteousness. So these people, therefore looked at the perfect law of God. And they compared themselves to that law of God and they said, we've sinned. They recognized that they had broken it. They confessed their sins and they repented. They heeded Malachi's warning that the day of the Lord was coming. This group was ready 
to come to Jesus on God's terms. How about us? Have you ever compared your life to the perfect law of God? Have you ever had that moment where you recognize that you have broken God's law? You have transgressed His perfect righteousness. Do you confess your sins and repent? Not just once, but is that a pattern of your life? The Christian life needs to be a repenting life. It's a life where we continually recognize that though we are growing from one degree of glory to another, though we're becoming more like Christ, uh, we are still sinning and we need to constantly be in a posture of repentance and confession. Do you today heed Malachi's warning that the day of the Lord is coming? Judgment day is real. Are you ready for it? See, we're only ready to come to Jesus on God's terms if we see ourselves the way God sees us. As sinners in need of saving. There was a group at the Jordan that saw themselves that way and they were ready to hear the gospel. Now, there was another group at the Jordan during John's ministry. They were very religious, kind of like us. They were very pious. They were very moral. Don't, don't ever think that, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were immoral. They, they, they were very moral individuals. But they had this against them. They did not see themselves the way that God saw them. They did not believe that they were really sinners in need of saving. And John had no time or patience for religious people who feigned repentance, who pretended to repent, who, who mouthed the words of repentance but did not actually truly repent. Take a look at, at John's reaction to this kind of person in verse 7. But when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath of come? I mean, that's pretty aggressive. We don't normally do that. I don't recommend it either. Um, but he said, you're just a bunch of snakes. You're, you're the children of snakes, and you're, you're producing snakes. And who warned you anyway? What gave you the common sense to come down here? Why are you here? Because it's clearly not to repent. So what are you doing here? Don't think that you can just go under the water and come out of the water and, and, and say that you've done your religious duty. You're not ready to repent. John warned them that the only way to flee the wrath to come is by bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Look at verse 8. He said to them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, what does this mean? This is really important. The only way you know if you've actually repented is if you bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Therefore, we better know what that fruit is and look for it in our own lives to know if we've actually repented. Otherwise, we're just like the Pharisees and Sadducees. So what is this fruit? This is... It might mean that uh, the fruit of repentance is a changed life. And, and for sure there is, that's within the concept of repentance, that when you're sinning and you're going in this direction, you confess your sin and you don't continue going in this direction. 
Repentance means you turn around and you go the other way. You make some changes to your life. So that's true. That's a true aspect to repentance. But I don't think that's exactly precisely what John means here about the fruit of repentance. More likely, the fruit that John has in mind is an awareness of their true spiritual poverty. The fruit of repentance is a sincerity, a humility, a grief, a poverty of spirit. You know when somebody has repented when you see this fruit. When you see that they are sorrowful over their sin. When you see that they know that they have nothing to bring to God but confession and repentance. When, when you say, I, I have nothing. I am totally poor. Now, if you're pu- uh, poor in money, it means that you have no cash to purchase goods. So to be poor in spirit is to, to come to that place where you recognize you actually have no spiritual resources to purchase your righteousness. That's the fruit of Repentance. Poverty of spirit. Now, I'm not denying that the changed life is a part of repentance. But everyone who repents will sin again, right? We're caught in this. So if we're looking for absolute new life, transformation, never sinning again, then that's just a bar that's too high for us. But what is, what is possible and necessary as the fruit of repentance for everyone who has truly repented is this poverty of spirit. Humility, grief, sincerity, sorrow over our sinfulness, a neediness, a lack of self-righteousness. That's the fruit. And we see this in verse 9. And verse 9 helps us to come to this conclusion. He says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. What what John was saying to the Pharisees was like, At the end of the day, you don't actually think that you need grace. You think that being a child of Abraham is sufficient. You think that your, your, your good deeds are sufficient. You think that your position in society is enough. But it takes a lot more than being a child of Abraham. It takes a lot more than keeping some of the rules, partially. The fruit of repentance is a recognition of your total need for God's grace. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees just didn't have it. Therefore, the heart of the issue here is an awareness of our spiritual poverty. No one will actually repent unless and until they agree that they are sinners, deserving of wrath and condemnation. Until you get to that place, you can't be a Christian. Until you get to that place, you're not ready to meet Jesus. Deep down, the Pharisees and Sadducees did not consider themselves to be sinners. John confronted them, until you acknowledge that you are sinners in total need, then you will not escape the wrath to come. The Pharisees did not believe they were sinners, and therefore their sin remained. And so, what happens to people who do not truly repent? People who come close but not far enough, who don't have this fruit of spiritual poverty to prove the sincerity of their repentance. Well, let's start with verse 11. 
John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Well, if I could summarize what John is saying, is like, look, I could put you under the water and bring you out, and I can't judge your heart. In fact, he probably looked over at the mass of people that he had baptized, and he didn't know for sure if everybody's repentance was sincere. He knew that the Pharisees were pretending, but he couldn't tell. I baptize with water. But there's one coming who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit searches hearts. And he is a consuming fire. And if you're pretending to repent when you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, he will consume you. So this is a warning. Don't, don't just come here and, and go through the motions in a religious way at the Jordan River. Don't just come to Green Pond Bible Chapel and go through the motions because you can fool everybody in the room. But you can't fool the Holy Spirit. And you will be tested, tested for the fruit of repentance. And what is that? It's not a righteous life. It's not that you did more good than bad. It's that you truly understood your need for grace. The Holy Spirit's going to be looking for that fruit. He's going to be looking. Do you truly believe that your only hope is Christ? Do you truly believe that you have nothing to offer? Because if not, this is what's going to happen. Look at verse 10. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The fruit in this context that we've already discussed, everyone who does not truly, fully see their need for God's grace, anyone who has an ounce of self-righteousness, who thinks that, you know, Jesus did 90%, I did 10%. Well, Jesus will wield an axe and chop you down and throw you into the fire. It's a very graphic image, very scary. Similar image is given to us in verse 11, or sorry, verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Same point, different imagery. So Jesus is holding both an axe and a winnowing fork, an axe to chop down trees, uh, uh, self-righteous trees, and a winnowing fork to separate the truly poor in spirit and the, from the self-righteous. And if you're poor in spirit and you come to God and you say, I have nothing to offer but sin, confession, and repentance, and I depend entirely on the grace of God, then you're wheat. And he'll gather you into his barn. But if there's any part of you that says, God, look at me. Look at what I did for you. Look at this righteousness. Aren't you pleased with me? Don't, are, are you not compelled to put me in your barn? He, your chaff. And he'll put you in the unquenchable fire. At the beginning of this morning, I said to you that what you do with this morning's sermon will literally decide your eternal future whether you go to heaven or hell, whether you're raised from the dead for eternal life or eternal death, whether you'll be chopped down and thrown into the fire, or whether you'll be like wheat gathered into the barn. And I meant it. You see, there's a real danger 
growing up in the American church, isn't there? Like the Pharisees and Sadducees, we can begin to think that salvation is our birthright. That Jesus is our Savior. That heaven is our home. That resurrection unto eternal life is our destiny. Without ever coming to that point in our lives where we truly see how utterly sinful and needy and poor in spirit we are. Without ever truly bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. There's such good news to this. We can't do it. And so all we have to do is release our pride. And realize that God has sent the king to do it for us. And the only thing the king wants from us is an acknowledgement that we can't do it ourselves. We have to be entirely dependent on him to do it for us. And so the gospel begins with bad news. We're sinners. We cannot be righteous in our own strength. But it ends with the most glorious news of all, that we don't have to be righteous. In fact, if we could just bear fruit in keeping with repentance, if we could just see our need, if we could just say, I have nothing to offer you, God, then he'll do the rest. He'll save us. And he will gather us into his barn where a farmer gathers wheat into the barn, and we will come through the final judgment, and we will be subjects in his kingdom. See, counterfeit conversion, based on false repentance, will keep you out of the kingdom of heaven. Having the appearance of godliness does not save. Being active in the church does not establish righteousness. Biblical and theological knowledge does not guarantee salvation. Even the devil is a theologian. That's why Jesus, just a couple pages later, warns people in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What is the will of God? That we recognize our need and we express that need Through repentance. And what's the safeguard against this? Nobody wants this to be true of them at the end, right? None of us wants this to be true of us. What is the safeguard? What is the the anecdote to this? Well, it's at the beginning of that very same sermon in chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, but you must be poor in spirit to enter. And the great news is, that's all God asks of us. I understand, if you truly belong to Christ, your life will begin to look like Christ. But the entry into his kingdom is based solely on the fruit of repentance. Are you poor in spirit? 
What you do with John's ministry will determine your eternal future. And John's ministry can be summarized by one verse. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Oh God, this is offensive to our world, to our uh, sinful flesh. Um, For those who are perishing, this is the worst news ever. But for those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God that, that we bring nothing. But Jesus, we praise you that you have done it all, all. And there's nothing left for us to give except to repent. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your righteousness is counted to us as our righteousness. If we but ask, if we give you our sin, we thank you that you have died in our place and rose again. God, please come in the person of your son, the Lord Jesus, establish your kingdom and welcome us into it. Lord, I pray for anyone here who has not fully repented. Help them this day to repent and enter your kingdom. I ask this in the name of Christ our King. Amen.